Good morning. Join Ethan and Greg in welcoming you today. It's good to be here, is it not? It's good to be alive. I appreciate the Brother Scott giving me the opportunity to share in his absence, and we're praying for them as they travel, as they're away, and trusting that they'll get back to us as soon as possible. Did you hear about the man who went into a pharmacy, and he walked up to the pharmacist who was in the aisle in the store, and he said, do you have anything here that will stop hiccups? The pharmacist stood up, doubled up his fist, belted the guy flush in the jaw, knocked him down on the floor, knocked him out cold. He went and got some smelling salts, propped him up, revived him, and said, well, you don't have the hiccups anymore, do you? And the guy looked up and said, sir, I never did. It was my wife out in the car. Sometimes we have mistaken identities. If you came this morning expecting to hear Scott, I'm sorry, it is what it is today. I'm going to be sharing this morning from Galatians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I think it's going to be on the screen, but if you have a Bible and want to follow along the reading of this as I read aloud, how many of you remember the term the generation gap? Some oldie goldies here this morning. You've heard of the generation gap. This morning, I want to deal with the regeneration gap, where there is a lag, there is a lacking of what God intends to be taking place between our initial salvation, when we're regenerated or when we're justified, when we're born again, and our eternal salvation, which is glorification, are actually seeing Jesus face to face when our faith becomes sight and we stand before him in heaven. And the area in between those two points, which is our experiential salvation. In other words, what's taking place here and now on earth in our life? What God is seeking to accomplish in us and through us since he has saved us? What's to be taking place between our immediate Salvation when we're actually born again and our infinite salvation and we're thinking about our intermediate salvation, where we are now in our walk, in our life with Christ. And I promise you there is a regeneration gap. I'm reading this morning from the New American Standard, whatever translation you have, you follow along on the printed page of your Bible. And compare the reading. We're in Galatians chapter 2, begin with verse 19. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, the King James Version says, I am crucified with Christ. But it's a present tense verb, which means that back then, back there when I was saved, when you as a Christian were saved, the day that I was saved, God, as it were, put me on the cross with Jesus as far as my old nature is concerned, my old self-life. And God has held me there ever since. That is from his side. Now from my side, I can climb back down off of that cross and take over my life again. I'm still saved, but when I do that, I'm living what the Bible calls the carnal life. 
a carnal Christian life. I'm living a self-controlled, a self-idolatrous life, self-loving Christian life. Anytime I climb back down off of that cross, the same is true of you as a Christian. And you may not believe it, but I'll risk it anyway. Most Christians you meet are living that kind of life today. They're living the carnal life simply because they're not reckoning self onto that cross. And God cannot work the resurrection of his new life inside that Christian so that Jesus can perform instead of the Christian. And Paul says here, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. In other words, the life I now live, having been crucified with Christ, is not my life. Now try to wrap your mind around that this morning. If you were up here and you were going to share what this means, what would you say this morning? The life I now live is not my life, but Christ. The life that Christ lives in me. Now, so many Christians have such artificial ideas about the Christian life and about what the Christian life is. And so many think that the Christian life is a, a life of reformation. And so they try to prune sin off one after another. And finally, when they've honed down sharp, they, they think they're living a pretty decent life. There's not a line in your Bible that you'll read as a Christian where God wants you to live a decent Christian life. He wants you to live a dynamic life. He wants you to live a disciplined life, a discipled life. The Christian life is not a reformed life. It is a replaced life. The Christian life is not a reformed life. That is never the Christian life. Rather, it is a replaced life where you die to let Jesus replace you with his life. That's what it means to be a Christian. And I want to submit to you this morning that this is hard business. This is tough business. And it's one revolutionary demand. That is for you to die, for me to die. Now it sounds easy until you have sought to actually die the way that Paul is talking about dying here. And it's just like any other radical demand of the gospel. It's easy as long as you don't have enemies to love for you to love your enemies, isn't it? It's easy to pray for those who spitefully use you until you have someone who despitefully uses you. See, this is a radical demand here. And when I say that you as a Christian have been replaced, I'm not talking about the fact that you no longer exist. You've not been done away with. It's just that the way you're to do things now is generated, it's orchestrated, it's activated by a new, different, indeed divine life source. So whereas Christ was once outside your life when you were lost and undone without him, he is now inside of you making it possible for his life to be lived through you. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and the life I now live is not my life. But the life which Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. In other words, in my present bodily life as opposed to 
the future glorified new body, I live in my present daily life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself. He sacrificed himself for me. Now notice verse 21. Paul says, I will not nullify the grace of God because if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. He died for nothing if righteousness comes by the law. In other words, if you could do it, if I could do it, if anyone else could do it, if we could do anything about perfecting a Christian life ourselves, then Jesus Christ died for absolutely nothing. What's the reason for his death if you could do it? What's the reason for his death if I could do it? What's the reason for his death if anyone could do it? What's the reason for his resurrection if you could do it? What's the reason for his resurrection if I could do it or if anyone else could do it? And that's why I say we do not need to be reformed. We need to be replaced. And yet so many Christians are trying to live a life of reform as opposed to a life of resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ inside of us. All right, let me read from John chapter 12. I think this verse is going to be there also. Look beginning at at verse 24 in John chapter 12. If you don't mind turning back to the left in your Bible, or I think it's on the screen. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, or of a truth, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, he says, it bears much fruit. Now, that's a pretty simple illustration, isn't it? You take a wheat seed, you put it on a shelf, and you leave that wheat seed there on that shelf, it will always remain alone. As long as it stays on that shelf, it will retain in it the dormancy of life. And yet it has the potential to be allowed to fall into the ground at any time and spring up and produce a rich harvest. But as long as it remains on the shelf and refuses to fall into the ground and die, it's going to remain, it's going to abide alone, it's going to be solitary. Now that grain of wheat represents two people. Number one, it represents Jesus himself. And he was saying, unless I die, I cannot produce the harvest the Father wants out of me. Unless I fall into the ground and die, I'm going to remain alone. In spite of everything I am, in spite of everything I do, I remain alone if I refuse to die. I cannot bear God's harvest if I refuse to die. So that grain of wheat represents Jesus, but secondly, that grain of wheat also represents you. It represents me. It represents all who will follow after Jesus Christ. And that which was said of Jesus is true of you. It's true of me. It's true of every Christian. If we refuse to die the way Paul is talking about dying here in Galatians, we're going to be embarrassingly alone for all of eternity as far as the divine harvest is concerned. If we refuse to die, then we will remain, we'll abide alone and the One thing God saved us for immediately was to bear fruit for him. 
or to produce the fruit through us that we're called upon, that we're commanded to bear as we yield ourselves up in death to him so that he might live again through us. Then that fruit, if that doesn't take place, that fruit is not going to be born unless until we die. Now, you may not believe it, but God has a problem on his hands. He's had a problem on his hands since the time he saved us. And he has a problem on his hands with any of his children. He has a problem on his hands basically with all of his children. The problem is, he in effect says, how do I get them to the point where they are willing to die? And he says, how do I even tell them that? How do I get this across to them? Because this is the very opposite of the premise on which they were saved. They were saved to get something. And that's fine. Jesus understands the reward motive in salvation. And he knows the way that we're built. And so he offers us salvation for heaven's sake. That's right. To get us to heaven. And that's the way we're saved. That's the way most of us were saved. I was saved because I was afraid to die. Out of the matrix of that fear, I was pointed to Jesus Christ. And upon my seeing Jesus Christ through the eyes of faith, the fear melted away when I became absorbed in him. When I received him into my life, I was born into the family of God, and now I'm not afraid to die. Now, don't misunderstand me. I have a instinctive fear like any other creature. But I have no fear of dying because grace has covered all that. And grace has put that aside. I want to live like you do. I want to live like anyone does. And I want to count for Jesus Christ. And I trust and hope and pray that you want to live and count for Jesus Christ. And in order to do so, I want to live as long as he permits me to live. But I'm not afraid to die. I'm like the fellow who I heard say one time, I'm not afraid of dying. It's the getting dead that bothers me. Isn't that right? It's not the fact of death that gives us trouble. It's the act of death that gives us trouble. But you see, grace has taken the fear of death away and covered that fear. And I thank God for that. I thank God that he saved me from the fear of death. All right, God has a problem, and God's problem is this. How do I get my people from where they are into what I want them to become? I want to lay out the Christian life for you very quickly this morning. And I want to use some words that we hear all the time. In fact, Scott went through a series of of messages about salvation. But you cannot say these. You cannot state these terms enough. You cannot exhaust these truths because they're infathomable. But I want to lay out the Christian life for you uh, this morning using some words that the Bible gives to us as being the intrinsic dimensions of the Christian life or what's involved in producing, if you will, a Christian. And I don't want us to take anything for granted. The reason so many in in the church or who belong, they say, to church, the reason so many in the church cannot live the Christian life is because they do not have the Christian life to live. You can't live until you are born. 
And that's a simple law of the way things are. You cannot live until you're born. And the reason so many in church today, especially in our Southern Baptist churches, the reason so many can't live is because they've never been born again. They've never been saved. All right, here's the terms. One of them is a crisis. And it's a crisis only. The Bible calls it justification. Regeneration, the day that we were saved, the day that we were born again. Now, if that word bothers you theologically, don't worry about it. I'll tell you very simply what it means. To be justified means that the moment that I was saved, the moment that you were saved, any person is saved, that moment that I was saved, God looked upon my past, my present, and here's the real stumper. He looked upon my future as if I'd never sinned. Were not then a sinner and would never again be a sinner. God looks upon me as being, listen, perfect. Because I am, it's not because I am, but I am because of what Christ is. And I'm perfect because of who Christ is. I have received Christ who is perfect into my life. The same is true of you as a Christian. And this is justification. Justified, justified, never sinned. Now, in that act, once and for all, the moment of the new birth, he saves me, he saves you, saves anyone that he saves forever from the penalty of sin. I am not one bit worried about hell. Now, quite frankly, some Southern Baptists ought to be nothing but worried about hell because that's where they're going to be for eternity. Unless they find themselves coming into the gateway of spiritual birth into the family of God. And in that moment, God justifies them. He looks upon them past, present, and future as if they had never sinned and never again would ever sin. Because of what he sees when he looks into their life and he sees Christ Jesus who now is their life. Everything's included. All things are covered. The second word the Bible uses to identify the process of the Christian life is the word sanctification. The process that is set in motion the moment that you are born into the family of God, into God's family, is what the Bible calls sanctification. And this is the growth process of the Christian life. It's the means by which God seeks to progressively deliver you from the power of sin. See, in regeneration, justification, you're delivered from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, you're delivered from the power of sin. And that's what the Bible teaches us. Your concern now becomes the power of sin over you, though you have been saved from the penalty of sin. And sin can still exercise a very terrible, dismal, awful power over a Christian. Why? Because a Christian, even though they're saved, still has the capability, still has the tendency, still has the ability, still has the possibility of sinning. And does to some degree with every passing day. Because the Christian life retains the old nature, the self-life, the flesh nature. And so sin can still retain a power over the Christian. And God has a plan to deliver the Christian from the power of sin. And that plan is known by the theological word sanctification. It means simply that God takes you from where you are as a Christian now and he sets you apart unto more of what he wants you to be 
in the likeness of Jesus Christ, his image becoming more progressively formed, more perfectly formed on the inside of you as you simply look to Jesus, trust him to go on and on, maturing you in and through his image. And I hate to drop the bombshell, but there's no such thing as a mature Christian. Only the maturing Christian. This is sanctification, progressive deliverance from the power of sin. Now, let me say this. If you cannot trace in your life today, right now, some evidences of a progressive deliverance from the power of sin, then you had better back up to this first point, the first word which corresponds with conversion, which is justification, and regard with suspicion the beginning of it all because chances are ideal for the fact that you've never been born, you've never been saved. If you cannot trace some evidences up to this point in your life of a progressive deliverance from the power of sin in your life, Because when he birthed you, he set you into life's processing. And this, again, is what the Bible calls sanctification. He's wanting to do something in you and through you and for you and by you as a Christian. And as long as everything is intact, even in your physical life, like air and food and cleanliness and rest, etc., etc., As long as those things are intact in your physical life, the growth process is able to be carried out. Well, the same is true in the Christian life. As long as you receive the means by which you grow, it's automatically, and you're going to grow spiritually. And the process, God has rigged it. It is guaranteed to work. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Stay in the Word. Live in prayer. Trust Him. He's promised to grow you. He'll set you apart progressively unto himself day after day every day that's the second stage all right the third stage is another crisis you see there are crises at the beginning and at the end of the christian life and in between there is a steady process where you might be like the spiral of a notebook you go round and round and round in your life but your direction is always toward jesus You may have temporary setbacks, but the established direction keeps you moving in the direction of Jesus. And that's one way, just one way you can know you're saved. If you're always moving in the direction of Jesus, regardless of the setbacks. All right, the crisis event that ends your life on this earth and begins your life in heaven forever, eternity forever, is what the Bible calls glorification. And you find that principle in the process of the Christian life. It's stated incredibly well in Romans chapter 8, especially the last half of that chapter. When God saved you, he saved you forever from the penalty of sin. Your conversion, your regeneration, your justification. In sanctification, he desires to save you progressively from the power of sin. But in glorification, you're saved from the presence of of sin, When your faith becomes sight, you stand before Jesus in heaven forever. And this can take place in one of two ways. Your, your physical death will get you there, or you're living when Christ returns for his church. But the process of the eternal order of things that will be true in the hereafter, all those things are set into motion 
the process of eternal glorification for the child of God is also set into motion at the moment of the event that we know to be the rapture of the church unless we die before that takes place. Now, in either case, you have no need to worry about what's after in either of those, either momentarily after or shortly after or quite some time after those events take place. But the moment you die, the process of glorification is set in motion. Now, it is a crisis at the beginning. But listen carefully to me because I could be wrong. I reserve the right to be wrong. But I would not say it if I did not have some idea that it could be possible. It could be that the act of glorification as a crisis act introduces to us another eternal process. In other words, another eternal process in which we grow forever. It involves our glorification. I'm saying that it could be that there will be a process in which we in eternity and all throughout eternity will continually be growing and growing and going on and on growing in the exploration of Jesus Christ himself. Now I say that only because Jesus has an infinite personality. He cannot be exhausted in the realization of who he is. And some might say to that, well, won't eternity be awfully monotonous? Friends, I don't think so. I don't think you can read the Bible and see that, even say that. Just from the surface reading of the Bible, that heaven's going to be monotonous. Not if Jesus is always there and always available and always accessible. And he will be always there, always available, always accessible. I don't believe we'll, we'll ever grow tired all throughout eternity of looking at Jesus and seeing him and beholding him and knowing him and worshiping him and serving him and adoring him and praising him and growing more and more increasingly like him. Now, certainly we're going to have a glorified body like his, but that will in no wise mean that we're going to know all there is to know in that glorified body. It'll be a process all throughout eternity. All right, the thing that you and I and all believers are to be concerned with right now is where we are between our justification and our glorification. And this is what we're calling the regeneration gap. All of us as Christians are somewhere between our actual new birth experience and our ultimate total likeness to Jesus Christ. To where Jesus is and where he wants us to be in our life for which he saved us. So God wants to set in motion a process by which the Christian becomes well advanced and is advancing always in his or her likeness to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're taking notes, I hope that you are. I want you to jot this down somewhere in your notes. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 18. See, the Bible points a, a finger at you today if you're a Christian. The Bible points a finger at every Christian and commands that you and I grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible points a finger at you today. God is pointing a finger at you and saying, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the goal that we're after, what we're moving toward, what the process is leading us to and into, in Romans 8, 29, is to be conformed to the image of God's Son so that Jesus gets an opportunity, he gets a chance to perform in us 
and perform through us. And people in turn, those around us have the opportunity to come in contact with someone, I'm talking about you and I, who is becoming incredibly like Jesus. And he's being allowed to live his life through us. That's the goal of sanctification. But still, that's the problem God has. And you see, this is a personal thing. It's a personal matter. It's not a corporate. God cannot do it in a group. He can't do it in a crowd. And this is what we're calling the regeneration gap. How do you get from this point of beginning, in other words, your conversion, your regeneration, your justification experience, where that is a reality, how do you get from there to the point of glorification? How does God produce a person from that, those two points? How does God bridge the regeneration gap in order to get the new believer from point A to point C? Well, it all begins, here it is, at the point of our dying. At the point of our dying, where we quit trying and we cease from our efforts. And when we do that really and truly and genuinely, we'll begin to see the creative work of God in our life. If we can come to the point in our life where we agree with what Jesus said about that grain of wheat, Falling, and in our case, it's falling before him in humble submission to what he wants us to do. Falling before him, falling and dying unto Jesus Christ and in Christ Jesus. Friends, when we die, at that, at that point, the Holy Spirit of God rushes into that vacuum created by our vacating of self through death. And he fills that vacuum up with Jesus and reaches out in all the points of our life where he becomes visible. And he is the one who's performing, not us trying to perform. This is what God is looking for out of your life. This is what God is looking for out of my life. He's looking for you and I to reckon ourselves on that cross with Jesus Christ in death, in identification with him. Remember what? Paul said, he says, I die how often? He says, I die daily. It's a daily thing. And here's the bombshell. Sometimes it's a moment-to-moment dying. Whatever you have to deal with, whatever you're dealing with in your life, it's daily and sometimes moment-to-moment dying. And resurrection will always follow Calvary. That's in God's economy. That's how it works. But we have to be willing to lay ourselves down to die. And until we do, Jesus is confined. He's limited. He's restricted in what he, he wants to do. Jesus wants to get himself to visibility. And that point of visibility in my life, in your life, in every area of our life. But he cannot do it until we're willing to die. I'm going to ask you, if you will, to bow your heads together with me. Our heads bowed and our eyes closed together. I've got a question for you this morning. Are you willing to attend the happiest funeral you will ever go to in your life? Are you willing to go up to the coffin and look down and see your face in that coffin? Have you ever seen yourself dead? Well, that's the way God vacates the self-life 
And that's the way he fills that life with his life, his Holy Spirit, the Christ life. Are you willing to lay down your life and die? Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, never trusted him as your personal Lord and Savior. We want to invite you to do that this morning. If the Holy Spirit is speaking, if he's leading you to do that this morning in this place, just step out in faith, come, and make that trusting of Jesus public before this church family. And then, dear Christian, the Holy Spirit desperately wants to do something revolutionary in your life, in my life, as his children. But if we refuse to allow him, then Jesus remains confined. He remains limited. He remains restricted. And you know what we do? We go on parading ourselves. We go on trafficking ourselves before the world. And all of it's going to be burned up when we stand before God. And only what Jesus produces will God accept. Only what comes out of Jesus is what God is going to accept. Not called to live the decent life, but the divine life. Called to live a disciple's life. Called to live the dynamic life in Christ Jesus. We can correct the regeneration gap. It can be bridged. It can be taken care of. But we have to be willing to die to say yes to Jesus Christ. Father, you, you through Christ do it the way that you want to do it through me and in me and by me and for me. See, the sanctification process is designed in the economy of God to be fulfilled in partnership. This is what all this talk about disciple making is. Being a disciple. Being a discipler. God's designed it that way. That's why we have a regeneration gap in our churches today. It's because in this sanctification process, there have been no disciplers. There have been no disciples produced because we think we can do it by ourselves. God never designed it to be lived that way, lived out that way. He has someone for you to get with. He has someone to get with you. And he wants to do that. Father, I pray that as you speak today, as you speak this morning, right now, Father, you'd give us the ears to hear. You'd give us the eyes to see what you have for us. And it may be that we need to respond publicly in that fashion to something that you're placing in our heart to do right now. Something maybe that we've never allowed you to do before in our life, but we are willing to do that today. Willing to die as never before. For Jesus Christ to be seen, to be visible, to be active, to be living his life in us and through us. As we stand complete in him here, waiting to get there to be with him. We ask this in Christ's name just. In his name we pray together. Amen.